Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. I was given like a pamphlet that looked like it was from the 60s. You know, like the, that, that was the kind of thing I was given. And I feel like there's a huge area there that is just, it's confusing for people. Do I eat red meat? Don't I eat red meat? Do I eat this? Yeah. Don't I eat this? And I'm like, you need to understand your own body. Like one of the things I always say to people is like, you need to create your own nutritional plan. You know, if, you know, if a doctor said to me post-surgery now, you can't eat nuts because it blocks up your stoma. Okay, well, I can, I can eat free and then I can go up from there. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease, but this time from a patient point of view. On this podcast, as well as sharing research on nutrition and the importance of lifestyle medicine from experts, I also want to be respectful of individual variation in experience, as well as the different paths people can take to control their condition. And it's for that reason, I want to really put a spotlight on some patient experiences and patient stories. So today I'll be talking with Seb Tucker and Misha Moirad, who I wanted them to share their stories with you uh, on a one-to-one basis. And I wanted them to do it purposely together because I want you to understand how different different variation can be in experience in the hope of spreading awareness about these two conditions and how different people may require different management. Misha is a personal trainer and rehab coach. Eight years ago, he was rushed to hospital with a burst appendix. And since then, his battle with health continued and he developed ulcerative colitis And after years of unsuccessfully trialing medications with a poor response, he had a stoma bag fitted and started blogging under the name Mr. Colitis Crohn's. Seb was also diagnosed at a similar time in 2008 with UC that completely changed his life and it's shaped the person he is, the work he does, the people he surrounds himself with and ultimately his he was able to, to take control of his condition with diet and lifestyle to maintain remission. And now he runs ibdrelief.com, which aims to improve care and access to information for patients. Today, we talk about both of their diagnosis stories, their different paths, owning their condition. I think this is really important. It really did resonate with me because this is something that I had to work through myself uh, over a decade ago. Um, and, and changing this concept of changing your vulnerability into a strength and that was definitely easier said than done and there was one moment on the podcast where Seb talks about how grateful he is for IBD and there is no way on earth that he would have ever said that at diagnosis or over the first few years because it is a constant battle a daily struggle and so for for Seb to be able to say that now really does demonstrate how far he's come emotionally as well as physically 
Um, and I also wanted to talk about their future goals and aspirations with their respective projects, which are absolutely amazing. And I just take so much inspiration from these two. I really think you're going to love this podcast. Do give it a, a five-star review if you enjoyed it and do leave a comment. I always try and get through to them as well. Thanks so much for listening and on to the podcast. Misha, Seb, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. I'm super excited to talk about this. Uh, like I was saying just before we start recording, you know, one of the benefits of having this podcast platform and the social media stuff is that I get to reach out to some incredible people who are at the cutting edge of research and can really talk, um, you know, about the the latest evidence base and all that kind of stuff. But what I think is distinctly lacking from the conversations is a human element and patient stories. And that's why I thought you guys would be amazing to talk to. Um, so I thought perhaps Misha, we, we could start with with you uh, with regards to your story uh, and what you do uh, on a day-to-day basis. And um, and yeah, and, and, and what your sort of mission is, I guess. Wicked. Um, yeah, so I, I basically, it started off quite complex to be honest I, in my early 20s i was really fit and healthy I had no like health implications whatsoever and then when i hit the age of about 21 i was in my final year of university and i just became really ill i had three different doctors come down to visit me in my dorms at university just to conclude that i wasn't hungover um <laughs> and i basically ended up uh, being diagnosed after a lot of extensive testing with um a burst appendix but to get to that point I was basically just sat in my dorm room for about a week without being undiagnosed mm. um, and you know at first you know you listen to your doctors I thought you know it could just be they were saying I had gastroenteritis so I just took that gospel and then it was only really when my dad came down from London he took one look at me and said you really don't look right and in that small period of time you know I was going to the gym five or six times a week um, and I was, you know, we were learning, I was studying high performance coaching. So the idea was we were applying uh, the stuff we learned around nutrition, health, fitness, and then applying it to ourselves as students. So it's really interesting. I was in probably the best shape of my life then. Um, he came down, took a look at me and thought, you know, look right. He took me straight to the hospital. And then basically all I remember from that point is walking into the hospital doors, uh, taking one look at the reception desk. I remember the little cubby hole in Southampton hospital taking a little look in there and I just collapsed. I just passed out. Um, and I didn't wake up for a further two and a half weeks. And basically what happened, they put me in an induced coma and they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. So they had to open me up um, via my abdomen. I've got like a nine inch incision scar now. And every day they had to take me down to the theater and effectively wash out all my insides because it was so aggressive in there. And that was when I got diagnosed with a burst appendix. So that was the first part of my journey. And a lot of the pictures that I post or have posted in the past of my journey, I woke up about five stone. So, you know, now about 12 and a half stone, but I woke up at five stone of weight. So that is how all the sort of initial things happened with my health. And then from there, I started basically having loads of toilet trips and these toilet trips started with, you know, going to the toilet maybe once or twice a day, like normal. And then it sort of started to go looser. And I thought maybe from that first surgery, they may not have knotted something up inside properly. I mm. thought maybe something's not right in that initial bit. 
And basically it wasn't, I started going to the toilet 40 to 50 times a day. Um, and that's when I started to get worried. And particularly I started to see blood in my stool because mm. a lot of the stuff I remember seeing when I was younger on the buses was if you've got blood in your stool, you might have like bowel cancer. And I was a bit like, you know, and I think being a young lad as well, I was quite concerned of coming forward. I was quite worried about how to approach it. Yeah. So I just spoke to my mum about it and said, listen, this is happening. She was like, right, let's go to the hospital and loads of extensive tests. And I got diagnosed with um, ulcerative colitis, which is, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. And they said it was quite bad. But at this time I was in my early twenties and I remember him sort of muttering the words about getting a bag and I just chose to completely ignore it. I thought, surely mm. I can just take some medication. I'm not that bad. Mm. Um, and then, you know, push went to shove. And after taking medication for, you know, in short, for about four years and nothing quite working, I ended up opting to get a bag fitted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, from there, that's when I started doing all the blogging, all the writing and sort of sharing my journey along that time. Because I found that there was a lot of people, particularly around my age, that are worried to talk about, you know, their health implications, are embarrassed or ashamed to, you know, share these things. Because, you know, the subject of poo is a bit, is literally a bit taboo, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's a little bit like people don't really want to talk about it. And then, yeah, it sort of has all led up to that point. Um, that's the main bit of my beginning part with health. Yeah. Um, and I ended up going back. I got my degree which, you know, I'm really happy about because all my friends graduated. That was a really hard time. Um, they all graduated. I had to take a two-year leave. Yeah, yeah. And then I went back and studied. I ended up getting my, you know, getting my BA ons. I'm in high-performance coaching and nutrition. And now I do rehabilitation work. So I work with clients with all types of medical conditions, whether it be, you know, they have, they've had a heart attack, so they're rehabbing from that. They've had a hip replacement or they need a hip replacement. Um, and particularly I work with people that have had extensive bowel surgery. So, you know, they just had a bag fitted or they need one fitted and I do their rehabilitation work around that. So that's what I do as a day-to-day job now, really. Amazing. I, I, I mean, in a nutshell, yeah, I know. I mean, there's so many parts of that story that I'd love to unpack uh, a bit more. I mean, before um, before we, I want to bring Seb and, and obviously Seb ask questions and, and vice versa. But when when did you have your um, burst appendix? How how old were you? So that was in that was in 2013, and I was 21 years old. 21. Okay, and 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 so you had your your burst appendix at 21. A harrowing uh, experience where, where you you had to have multiple operations to to do washouts. Um, and and when did you when were you diagnosed with them? Um, see. So UC came about a year and a half after that time. So I initially got the, you know, the prognosis of a burst appendix. And it was quite interesting, actually, because in the notes that the doctors gave when I left hospital, mm. it actually said um, indicators and showing signs of Crohn's disease. But ah. they didn't actually tell me that upon leaving hospital. So oh, wow. I, I basically I left hospital. And bearing in mind, someone at the age of 21... I didn't even know what bowel disease was. I didn't even yeah. know about illnesses, nothing. Um, but yeah, they said that in my notes, which I thought could have been conveyed better yeah. from, from the hospital to go, listen, we found traces of this. You might want to further look into this, but I had no idea. So there was a link or a correlation potentially between my appendix bursting and me having this condition underlining the whole time, but I'll never yeah. know that. Absolutely. I mean, that definitely seems quite an oversight by the hospital to not mention that and the fact that you didn't have any follow-up 
until the diagnosis of UC and I mean that yeah that's definitely a huge issue right there I mean when you when you had the diagnosis I'm, I'm assuming you had a whole bunch of tests stool tests uh, colonoscopies um, and, until you were actually given that firm diagnosis yeah well I had a lot of a lot of blood tests from you know from from my own education now I've learned over the time mm. I feel like there's a huge pocket there of still the lack of understanding and you know I know the NHS is stressed so quite often they can palm something off if they don't think it's you know within your age bracket or you know you've got a you know GPs have got such a vast amount of conditions to overlook mm. but you know from my appendix bursting I had three GPs come and look at me at home for that not to be diagnosed I thought it's crazy for one um you know mm. for that to be overseen so I remember for a long time I was actually quite bitter yeah. about that but you know mistakes are made aren't they it's only human error but mm. I had loads of blood tests blood tests showed that my um my levels were all raised within my blood so my you know mm. that showed inflammation within my blood but I didn't get an actual diagnosis until I had that colonoscopy that was one thing I had to wait for um, yeah. which isn't the most pleasant thing in the world but I've had about 15 now so I'm quite used to it yeah yeah and um I, I want to get into a bit more about your, your treatment and um and you know the, the decision to opt for um uh, a colostomy bag uh what well, a bag and we can we can talk about the different types of um of stomas as well um but Seb I thought I'd bring you in here as well and just perhaps introduce yourself your story and uh the, the incredible work that you're doing with the rbd community certainly thank you i think i follow some similar uh trends to what what misha experienced um i was i was also 21 when i was first experienced symptoms for me my first symptoms were seeing blood in in my poo um at first i didn't really think that much about it i went a few days and then it was still present. So I decided to go to the GP, um, didn't do any examination or anything, just took my sort of symptoms and just said, oh, I, th I think you've got a hemorrhoid and gave me some hemorrhoid cream. Um, I didn't take the hemorrhoid cream because I was like, I don't want to put my finger, pink finger there. Um, and then sort of things started to get worse. So I started to go to the toilet more frequently, started to become diarrhea. So I went back again. This time they referred me to gastroenterology, um, but the waiting list was about, I think they said six or eight weeks or something. Um, and things sort of, again, progressed worse. I was living, I'd just finished university and I'd come back. So I was living at home. Um, my parents were quite worried and, and my mum ended up ringing 111 and speaking to them and they're like, you need to go to any, like, I was, I think I was probably going to the toilet 20 times a day, um, losing weight, lots of blood. Turned up at A&E, was seen by a doctor and he took some kind of like basic sort of stats like my heart rate and blood pressure. Um, and at this time I had already done some research and I, I said to him, I think I've got ulcerative colitis like, from my research. I think this is what I've got. Um, and he turned around and said, he brought up some website and saw ulcerative colitis and he was like, nope, you don't match the symptoms or you don't match all the symptoms. Um, and said, I think you've got hemorrhoid. Again, no investigation. I was sent on my merry way. Um, quite frustrated leaving hospital then because I was like I, I don't think I was taken seriously but I kind of felt helpless um I then things got even worse I was going similar to Misha I was going 40 times a day I, I can't remember just all the time wow. <laughs> um it was affecting my sleep I'd lost like 10 kilos and again I was only probably 
80 kilos and went down to 70 kilos. And this was all within three weeks. So it was pretty quick. Went back to A&E again. And this time I was like, I'm dying here. Like what, like someone needs to see me. And this time a doctor did a, a rectal examination. So he put his finger on my bum and he was like, oh, you've got mucus. Like you might have ulcerative colitis. I was like, that's what I've been telling you for like <laughs> over a week. Um, which is kind of a relief. Uh, got admitted to hospital. Um, was told I needed to have a scope to see what was going on. Um, so I was sent for a sigmoidoscopy the, ex- the next day. And this, this is the first time I've ever really been in hospital or stayed in hospital. It was quite a scary experience. I had had these, the sigmoidoscopy. I could see clearly, like, you, they didn't put you under. It was like, I was like, do you give anything for this? And they're like, nope, just some Vaseline and pull your knees up. And it's like, okay. <laughs> um, and at 21, that was quite... Uh, I mean, it's, it, I can Im- I can imagine it being super Im- embarrassing as well. I mean, the fact that you know you didn't would even want to take the hemorrhoid cream in, in your early twenties, and then suddenly you're you're faced with a telescope that has to be introduced into your into your rectum. I mean, quite often in those times as well, it's not just one person there. I remember having like oh, there was about amazing. four or five people in the room, and I was thinking, this is. I didn't expect it because I think for, for doctors and stuff, it's very routine. Like that. this is how they do it. But when you're yeah. A young lad or, or a young woman and you go into that environment it's, it's quite stressful i remember on sitting on the um uh masu i can't remember what, what that rupee is that's medical assessment ward. oh yeah 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 masu, we, we have different names depending on where you are okay, so sometimes yeah. it's amu um, uh, uh, mau okay. yeah yeah <laughs> um and this uh I was, I was single at the time and um this uh rather attractive lady doctor came around and was like i need to examine you and i was like oh jesus <laughs> You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna buy me dinner first. <laughs> um, and I, I remember after the scope, I remember because Misha, you'll know this from having had one. Like you, you can you can see the screen, like you can see what's going on. And as soon as I could see, I could see I had ulcerative colitis, and it came up. And I remember leaving the theatre and and breaking down in tears, both of like relief that actually they'd. Like they knew what they were dealing with now, mm-hmm. but also like masses of fear because I'd read a loads of stuff about how it really impacted life and how it would limit lots of different things. And uh, and then I ended up spending um, nine days uh, in hospital. I was on intravenous um, steroids to try and bring the inflammation under control. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told I had surgeons on standby. They were really worried that my colon was in a really bad state mm-hmm. and... Um, that I was very close to, to requiring emergency surgery to remove my colon. Mm. Um, I remember at the time being really sort of frustrated, scared, like didn't know what's going on. Frustrated that this doctor a week ago hadn't taken me seriously because I was like, if I do lose my colon, like what, what would have happened if you treated me a week ago? Um, and really, it was the last thing I wanted to happen. Like I was like, I don't want to do that. But interesting, I ended up on... They didn't have enough room on the gastro ward and ended up on the uh, amputee ward. And I was talking to an old guy there who just had his leg taken off. And he was like, I much prefer to have my leg taken off from a bowel out. And I was like, mm, mm. I don't know. I think I quite like my legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but certainly over the years now and like all the great work that Misha does and everyone else in the IBD community, like surgery doesn't scare me mm. now as, as much as it did. Mm. But it was certainly still, I felt it was a, a last resort or like a yeah, I didn't want to go down that route. But yeah, that was kind of my diagnosis journey. Yeah, oh my God. I mean, like, you know, as an early 20-year-old, I I can't imagine how scary it was. And, it, you know, I have a, a very small insight into the vulnerability aspect and the frustration aspect for 
from when I was diagnosed with um, atrial fibrillation uh, as, a, as a doctor as well. So junior doctor, three months onto the ward, suddenly started having atrial fibrillation episodes, going at 200 beats per minute. And the, the first time it happened, I was on shift and I had to be taken out of my clothes, put on a gown, hooked up to a cardiac monitor. And um, I, I remember vividly, and I, I've said this a number of times in the podcast as well, so apologies if people are hearing this story again and again, but I remember vividly being wheeled down the corridor and loads of people, random people just walking past, not paying any attention to me whatsoever. But the embarrassment of that single episode of just being transferred from one ward to the x-ray department has never left me. And I, I, I always empathize when people even have to don a gown to do anything and, and walk around the hospital because you, we don't experience what, what that's like. And that alone is very embarrassing, let alone if you have a telescope introduced into your bottom. Yeah, I remember, remember afterwards as well because they, they have to pump air into you to kind of inflate the bowel so they can see what's going yeah. on. And then afterwards just full of air and then like um, I ended up soiling myself on the um, on the wheelchair mm. that they were wheeling me around it. And I was like so embarrassed. I was like, my parents are there and I was like, I couldn't tell anyone that I just, well, let out a lot of wind in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was some extra stuff with it. But yeah, I, me- I remember just being in that situation of feeling like extremely vulnerable and like everyone was looking at me. You know, like everyone was, because I was like a skeleton, like really drawn. And it's the same when you're suffering with IBD. It's like all your nutrients is pulled out of you and you look very unwell sometimes. Like I would, and that's quite difficult for people to understand. Like, because at the beginning, when you're, when you're physically unwell and people start to understand that you're unwell, I remember going for like, I try and go for a, a social gathering with my friends and people constantly ask me like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And then after a period of time, people almost get bored of you being ill, if that makes sense. So you can eat, you can be ill for an extended period of time and people will understand that. And after a certain period of time, people were just like, you're just that ill person. And I remember that I found that really hard with living with chronic illness, just being ill and sick all the time. It was tough. When you had your um, UC diagnosis, um, I remember you just said there that, you, you know, you felt quite arrogant or, you know, waking up and used to be probably quite body confident as well, right? Uh, I can imagine, you know, especially if you go into the gym and you study nutrition. Um, what was the next four years like for you uh, living with a chronic disease and, and perhaps even doing a bit more research on it as well? And, and the, the more you realized, you know, what your life was, was going to potentially be like going forward? Like initially, like horrendous. Like to be honest, initially I, I thought... I didn't know because you're living very much day by day and you're relying on things that you don't understand. So mm. I would just be given these long words that might have been written, might as well have been written in Spanish um, of medications that I was taking. I was like, I have no mm. idea what these are. And I dared read on the packaging the long-term effects because mm. otherwise you wouldn't put a single thing in your body. It was, yeah. very, much, it was very much that kind of situation. And yeah, I guess... There was, there's, a, there's a turning point of where you're struggling mentally for a period of time and then it's like the physical part of the condition knocks you as well. So you've got the combination of like, okay, this is really hard for your mind to come to terms with. Like I'm living with a condition that potentially the only other people I've seen diagnosed with it are 50 years older than me. Mm. And particularly when you're in hospital, I found that really difficult because everyone on the ward, you know, th- these conditions are more related to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s have got like bowel cancer and stuff like this. And I was just sort of sat there like, okay, who do I, who do I relate to in terms yes. of this? 
you know, so, and that that's really really difficult. And that's that's one of the I think mentally I struggled more at the beginning than what I did with the physicality because I knew once I could once I could get control of this condition, I would be able to overcome it. But it was getting the control in the first place. Yeah, yeah. What what was your support network um, like d- during that period? I've got an amazing family. Like my my family are incredible. But initially, I started looking in forums because you know you can have the you can read all the medical research in the world but you can't like relate to that i want to know i wanted to know like okay so if i'm having this discomfort has anyone else got this that was you know that was the initial bit for me initially i thought the best place to look was going to be forums i thought you're not going to find a better place than other people that are living with it and then after a you know a a very short period of time i came to realize it was just full of a lot of negativity. So there was like quite a lot of people that are obviously unwell and struggling with their conditions. And they were putting that on these forums, which in actual fact, instead of making me feel better, it was making me feel more concerned because they were like, you know, someone would say, oh, what's, what's living with a bag like? Which I knew was the next step for me. And people were really like, some people were putting things on there that were shocking me. And I was actually getting scared. I was thinking, oh my God. Like, I was expecting to find like some positivity on there so then I thought you know what I'm I'm coming out of these I, I, I came out of all the forums and I thought I'm gonna start blogging myself and not for anyone else it was literally I had a a web page I think it was like a Wix and I would just oh, yeah, write it, a yeah a Wix like a really <laughs> old one yeah and I I was just I wasn't it wasn't live it wasn't no one could see it I just used to write on there how I was feeling on the day um a certain thing I struggled with. Um, if I ate something that had a bad implication, I would write it down. Yeah. And then I remember some. I remember it came up on it might be like Crohn's and Colitis UK forum. Someone asked a question. I thought I know that, so I thought I'm going to write that. And I started doing that more and more on people's stuff, um, just purely out of my own experience. And then someone wrote on there one day, "You should start like a something yourself." And I thought you know, maybe I will because it's helped me so much this sort of channeling my energy and all the problems I was having. Um, I'm going to start doing that. And then within literally, I think it must have been the first couple of months, I had like a couple of hundred followers and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like I don't, and and at this time, Instagram and blogging and stuff wasn't really a thing. I didn't really follow anyone. So I was like, I was just thought I've got these random 400 people following me. Like this is really cool. Um, and then I carried on doing it and it sort of grew and grew and grew. And then, and then the one thing that changed it was when I started, after I had that surgery and got a bag fitted, when I started doing more like actual physical pictures of me showcasing my bag. Um, and then it sort of went from me showcasing my bag and then people were asking me questions like, what actually is that? Because a lot of people still don't understand what a bag is. They understand like the concept of a bag. Like they're like, oh, I've seen one of those but they don't actually understand like a best example would be for me to show you actually. So I feel like a lot of people, they understand that now, like society kind of gets, uh, (laughs) society kind of understands this, but what they don't understand is like what goes in that hole. So then I thought I would kind of want to open the conversation up about that because no one was really talking that next phase. And then, yeah, that's when things really went from being like, you know, having a few hundred followers to like on Facebook now, something like 60,000, you know, on Facebook alone. And then it's just sort of grown from there. Um, But I think for me, one of the, yes, my family and support network, that was all incredible and friends. 
and I was doing 50 hours of personal training whilst going to the toilet 50 times a day and none of my clients left me when I went in for that surgery they stayed with me all of them you know which is incredible but it's kind of like all those I've got a good connection in terms of people what support me but the online world has helped me loads because I've managed to channel all of my troubles into that and then whilst helping other people but getting so much back from it as well which is amazing it's wicked yeah I want to pause your story there, actually, and I want to come back to your decision about um, the, the bag, and, and we can talk a bit more about the nuance of the bag. But uh, uh, Seb, uh, uh, we reached your story up to the point where you finally had this diagnosis that you were dreading. You'd already done a bit of research about ulcerative colitis and the implications of that going forward. What happened? What happened next in, in your story? So it's in hospital kind of told what I had wasn't really given much information at all just you've got ulcerative colitis I remember an IBD nurse coming around and saying oh I am um, doing some research and I th- she believed that there would be a cure within she said 15 to 20 years or something um, and that really stuck with me because that and I think uh, I know she was probably trying to be positive about it and saying like like they're working on things and things will get better but for me, that was then like, okay, if there's side effects from medications, is there, like, if there's impacts to my life, actually, I can kind of ignore it because there'll be a cure soon. Um, so I ended up probably not taking my health as seriously because of because of that being said to me. Um, I didn't, I just kind of got on with my life, I think. And that's what, again, the doctor said, just like, you've got this, take these meds, go and get on with your life. And I just, just got on with it. I would still flare up um, quite frequently. Um, every time I tapered off my steroids, I would flare up. Um, I would end up bleeding again, going to the toilet lots, um, going back on more steroids, and just that cycle just constantly. Um, and I hadn't really met anyone else with the disease as well. Um, I didn't really go online. I wasn't, I mean, I was on Facebook, but I didn't even think to go and look at anything else on Facebook. Um, I think it must be quite like, like Misha was saying about when you do start going in these groups, like there's a huge mix of opinions on there and like positive stories, but also some negative ones. And I think in a way I didn't get introduced to that till about 2012. So I'd, I'd already been living with the disease for about four years. And I do wonder if by living with it for a little while, it then made it, I was, I sort of dealt with some stuff already rather than being thrown into this environment. I think now maybe are people jumping straight into those places and that might be a really positive thing, but it also quite might be a negative thing. I I don't know, Misha, what your thought is on that. Like there's so many positive negatives of social media and I think it's a, it's a delicate area and I think we need to use it as a tool, but it can be unfortunately i think you're always going to have when you're dealing with people with medical conditions some people have you know they're not happy that day and you know the internet you can just chuck it out there and sometimes you might not actually mean what you say but the implications and this is something that i get really frustrated frustrated with online is you know sometimes i'll get some horrible comments on my posts but it's because like you know i'll release a video and over a million people will see that video from all over the world. So you're not just dealing with people, you know, with the same same belief system They're on the other side of the world. 
Um, but what it doesn't bother me because I'm quite hardened to that. Like Seb said, you get hardened stuff like that and you realise that some people don't understand, but it's the people that are seeing my posts and then they're reading it because it, it reminds me of the time where I was like, when I was reading what other people were saying and it was really affecting me um, and it was making me really worried. So yeah, the, like you said, it's, it's a sort of double-edged sword, isn't it, with the internet? It can be amazing, but it can also be terrible at the same time. And, and do you think, Seb, you know, during this period of time when you were having um, cycles of, of flares and going back on high dose of steroids and then tapering down and then having flares again. I mean, it, it sounds like a very frustrating experience and, and without that sort of strong support network, I can understand why people just quite easily slip into um, depression uh, and a really unsteady mental health state. Would you say that you were... You, you were in that category or, or, or close to it or? I think I, I've, I've been fortunate that I don't feel like I've ever really been depressed from it. Like it's, it's, like it's definitely had some big effects on my mental health. I think the, the thing I struggled with the most was toilet anxiety. Mm. So needing the toilet all the time, like even doing something like we're doing now, I would be absolutely terrified that, mm in a minute I'm going to need to run to the yeah. toilet and what's going to happen so that was a big thing for me and, and having accidents I would um I, mean, I, I don't know how many times I've I've soiled myself um and that's hugely embarrassing and and it it never stopped me doing anything I, I'm, I'm aware of a lot of people that that then they become fearful of even leaving the house mm. and I was determined for it not to stop me but it, it still like it's hugely embarrassing and I, I would have to wherever I'd go I'd carry a spare pair of boxes and trousers and even socks or like when you when you let go completely then you you surprise where it all ends up yeah yeah <laughs> it's like man I got my shoes now. Yeah. I, I find I find that interesting Seb that you you know you you haven't found it that mentally taxing because I, I would say I struggled a lot mentally when I was, I, I think the reason why I struggled the most mentally was because there's no means to an end when you're living with a chronic illness. It's sort of like, it's just constant. So you're, you're, you know, you're constantly getting hit back down. I remember being in, in a situation where I'd already been in hospital for about four months going in, getting IV steroids and I just happened to stay on the wall because they're worried that I was going to perforate. And then I'd be like, they'd be like, right, you're going home on Friday. And I'd be like, I'll be so happy. Like I get to just leave this like prison. Like, it literally did just turn into a prison. And then Friday would come, I'd go home. I'd straight away go to the toilet like 30 times in that day because, you know, the IVs and everything had come out of me. And then I would just sit there. I remember sitting in my mum's bedroom, looking out the window, just crying for like a whole day. And then the next day I'll be back in hospital again. And I think that, that I found really frustrating. Like I was watching my friends graduate um, but watching people like progress in their life because in your 20s that's like a really like pinnacle time of like setting up a business or you know jo joining starting your career and I felt like that was just completely stripped from me so I remember mentally I was thinking is this like going to be forever now like is this the way I'm going to have to live and then I started just giving up on everything and then I just didn't go out I remember just being like a recluse I didn't talk to my friends and yeah I really struggled mentally and, and even though I've got an amazing support network it just still, I, I felt more alone than ever. Even when you're surrounded with people, it was horrible. I think you, so 
I reflect back on it now and realize how much impacted on me. But at the time when you're living in it, it's kind of all you know. So you, like that is your normal. Um, and I, I remember certainly, certainly we had those ups and downs where it, like it would start to get worse again and I would be sat on the toilet and I, and I would cry on the toilet and be like, like, when is this going to end? And like that, there were some, definitely some low points there. Every time I sort of tried to pick myself back up and then something would help turn it back the other way. So whether it was going back on medications or something like that, that would help give me some hope that, okay, I can, I, I, I knew I could get better when I was taking steroids. So it was kind of, I always had that thing to turn to. Um, it's funny you say that though as well though, Seb, because I remember finding that word infuriating when I go to the hospital and they'd say, right, we're going to pop you on some steroids again. I was thinking it like, you know, it's like the only answer what they have for you. It's like, there's your steroids, go, go and take these and you'll be fine. And I remember thinking there must be, there must be something else I can take. I mean, that, that's what was frustrating. And I think for me, I'd started to notice patterns. So I'd started to notice, like I run my own business. So I, I would joke and I'd have a flare up every payday because it's like money would get tight and I wouldn't have enough money to pay people. So like that would be my flare up. And I, I remember saying to my consultants at the time, I was like, I'm pretty sure stress is having a big impact here. And I remember one doctor just saying, oh no, that's a load of rubbish. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it is. Like I, And now we know research that that's most definitely true. Um, yeah, that was frustrating as well. I'm never feeling like I was listened to. And like Misha said, like, you just don't have any options. It's kind of like you've got a drug or maybe another drug and there was not much else. And for me, that the thing that kept me off steroids or made me try and really come off steroids, because I, I was just like, steroids kept me okay. I didn't, I had side effects, but I probably didn't take them as seriously as I should have done. Um, or they didn't impact, they didn't impact me as much as going to the toilet 30 times a day. For me, it was, I watched the 2012 Olympics, was inspired to get back into athletics. I'd always wanted to, when I was diagnosed, I was told that I wouldn't be able to exercise as much anymore. Um, And that always kind of stuck with me and like frustrated me. I was like, well, but there was times where I would try and exercise and it would, I'd be too tired or like. Just to add some context, Seb, you were a semi-professional footballer, is that right? Mm, Not semi-professional but I used to play I, I played take county, county level, level. <laughs> you're a pretty good footballer come on county level football um, but yeah I watched the athletics and I was like oh, I really fancy doing athletics and, uh, and I, I'd been a runner when I was younger and, and I look back and actually the, the most thing I the thing I enjoyed the most about football was just running around like a headless chicken <laughs> running past people um, so I got back into athletics and realised that actually I was quite quick and I, I was running at quite a high level and then was starting I got ahead of myself and I was like oh I could like run at a higher level and stuff and I was like oh but I can't because I'm on steroids and that's the banned substance so it was it was interesting that it wasn't my health that was the motivator for me to want to try and come off steroids mm. or find something else it was actually the athletics wow. that made me do that and that was when I started to explore other things for my health and that was like the yeah. beginning of my health journey and Seb, as well there, when you were taking, you were obviously taking steroids, were you taking any other medication alongside that, like immunosuppressants or? So I was on, I was on mesalazine the whole time. So that was what I was given. Um, they wanted me to come off the steroids. So they put me on azathioprine, which is a immunomodulator, immunosuppressant. Um, that made me feel terrible. Uh, I know it worked really well for a lot of people, but for me, 
I felt really run down. I was getting cold all the time. And I don't know whether I was also scared of the drug. Like I've read some bad stuff about it and knew some of the side effects. So I think there's almost like a negative placebo effect sometimes with some of these medications. Um, so I had to come off that. I tried 6 mecaptopurine, which is another form of uh, thiopurine. And yeah, so we tried a few different things. But for me, I think biologics weren't indicated for ulcerative colitis yet at that stage. So I didn't really have many other options. And I think sort of surgery was kind of becoming that mm-hmm. next option, which I also didn't really want to go down at that time. Um, and like I said, I'd started to notice that different things were affecting me, like stress. I'd noticed certain foods were sort of causing some problems. So it made me sort of intrigued, like, actually, you know what? Is there more that I can do with this? And that's when I started to join i joined uh crohn's and colitis uk set up their facebook forum and i was like one of the first kind of people in there um and started people would talk about stuff i'm like oh wow like it was the first time i'd ever sort of spoken with other people with the disease and people would be like oh i've done this or i've tried this or i've experienced this i'm like oh wow like other people experience this stuff and that was it really sparked my interest i if someone said something i was like that's interesting i want to learn more I want to maybe try it myself. Um, so I remember one of the first things someone was saying, oh, I've cut out tap water and that's made a big difference to me. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. So did some research, tried it myself. It seemed to make a difference. Um, my belief there, I think there's a lot of chlorine and things like that in the water. Maybe that disrupts our gut microbes. Like, I don't know, it needs to be put for a trial, but it, it felt like something easy to do that I just switched to filtered water. Um, so that kind of started to give me hope that actually, you know what, maybe I can start to have some control on this and, and, and start to make me interested in what, yeah, what more can I learn? What other things do people know that I don't know that I want to like just absorb everything and see what happens? I, I want to pause there because I, I, this is kind of where I think um, both your stories I mean, they're remarkably similar. I didn't realize <laughs> how similar they were in terms of like the time of diagnoses and, you know, your, your, your journeys and stuff and the number of years it's taken. But, um, this is where, um, your, your treatment is, uh, different in that, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but certainly there, there are different methods and it's all based on the individual and all the rest of it. Um, but before we go into that, cause this is kind of where the stories get a little bit lighter, uh, and there's a bit more, you know, positivity, I guess, in, in both of your, ambitions and what you're doing uh, in this space but um i just wanted to to double tap on the frustration uh, element there it, I, I was um when was it, it was last week now saw a patient come into ed and this is during pandemic times right so already had loads of stress this year um a number of different flares uh, uh she, she was a, a young patient i don't want to get into too many details for confidentiality reasons but young patient uh long-term sufferer and i remember we were just going through the history and stuff and you know the last time she had a flare the last time she was admitted uh her treatment which is quite similar to actually to, to some of the medications that you're on seb um and in the middle of me taking history, she just broke down crying. And it was just this pure frustration of not again, not again do I have to keep on coming back and then having the IV steroids and being admitted. And I don't, she didn't want to be here. She was just so frustrated. And, and like we try to 
create a treatment plan where she could actually come back as an outpatient, but her HB was way too low and her albumin was quite low as well. So we ended up uh, giving her IV steroids. But I remember just speaking, just giving that extra moment to to empathize with that. And it's remarkably common and, and both of you guys have, have have talked about that in terms of your own journeys as well of that just frustration of having to come back particularly when you're young and it, and it's it's very unfair because like you were saying Misha you know these are times where you're building yourself up you're establishing your personality and your your businesses or your interests and, and careers and you know it shouldn't be happening and it's uh, yeah my 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 personal experience of it is I, I, I also found frustrating is, is the, the passing on from doctor to doctor and the explanation of your story every time. I was thinking, are you serious? I'll go in, I'll be like, what are you taking medical notes for if you don't know what, who I am? And, you know, when you've got a very complex condition, having to explain that story over and over was probably one of the reasons why that girl broke down because she's probably said that story to about 70 other doctors because I've done that same thing. And I'll never forget the one doctor that I liked the most, um, Dr. Dr. Hovel, his name was. And he was, he, was, he was in my hospital when I first went there. And I was like, straight away, I was like, we clicked. I was like, you can talk to people. Because one of the doctors that I spoke to originally, I was like, I left there petrified because I had no idea what he was talking about. And then I went down the hallway and spoke to these stoma specialist nurses and the nurses that deal with like, um, actually it was before I even had the stoma talk. It was just a specialist that dealt with, you know, people that are living with bowel disease and they would have to break down the notes so I could understand them. And I was just like, I just want someone that I can relate to. And this doctor I remember was leaving. I'd been with him for about a year and he was moving out of the catchment area And I sat down and spoke to him. I said, listen, I said, I can't actually deal with going to another doctor. I I need to stay with you. And he offered me to go with him. And one of the reasons, I'm not sure if he's allowed to do this, so don't stitch him up. One of the reasons why he said is because the funding where he was going was a lot more significant than what the funding was at the hospital that I was currently at. So I could get hold of drugs like infliximab and adalinumab and trial these other medications to potentially make my condition better. And I needed those drugs. So I ended up moving with him um, out of my catchment about an hour away and it was well worth it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that, that, one, that one medication I took, being infliximab, put me into remission for a year. And bearing in mind, I was going to the toilet 40 to 50 times a day, which was just water and blood. Yeah. And yeah. after two infusions of infliximab, um, I had the first solid poo I had in over four years. And I was like, I remember looking at it in the toilet like... <laughs> Amazing. Celebrating time. Yeah, yeah. When you do a, do a proper poo. You're it's like, ama- yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing what, what, you know, we take for granted. Like the fact that, you know, uh, normal poo. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's something we don't want to talk about, but it's, yeah, it's crazy. It just, you know, it's one of those things where I just think it's so important to have a gratitude Um journal every single day because it's the small things that you you take for granted you know from having gone through health journeys which like we have like it it does make you a lot more appreciative of the things around you and the people in your life and like small things like um certainly for for myself like being able to go and walk and not have to worry about needing a toilet or actually 
those things you, you you really value a lot more that you really would have taken for granted before. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I'm glad we unpacked a bit about toilet anxiety because it's a, it's a it's a huge thing, you know, constantly wanting to know where the nearest toilet was. And Sorry. one one thing whilst we're touching on medication, like, and this is where it shows that everyone is completely different. Is like Seb took medication and to some of it had a very good, you know, positive reaction to it. Whereas me, I spent four years pretty much disabled from taking medication. It was so horrendous, like to the point of where my airways closed twice. I had to be rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. Both my eyes were constantly hemorrhaged. So, you know, like if you were to have a, a head collision and your eyes would bleed out, I had that constantly. Um, I got diagnosed with like a, a skin problem, which was like, I think it's erythemia, where it's, it was something like, it was a Latin word for blood rising to the surface. So always I had these red adhesions all over me and all my limbs were swollen. So there was a point where I couldn't walk because my legs were like six times the size and they couldn't differentiate whether it was the medication I was taking or just the fact that my CRP levels and stuff were so high that my body was going absolutely mental. And I no longer have any of those problems anymore. You know, yeah. so it just shows that people's bodies react so differently to medication. Absolutely, yeah. So were you having anaphylactic reactions to some of the medications you were having? They couldn't tell me because what they were saying is your bowel kicks off certain signals when it's, you know, really inflamed. So I think it was a combination of like my body being really confused and just sort of attacking itself all over. Um, because effectively, as far as I'm aware, like Crohn's disease and bowel disease in the most like simple form is your body attacking itself, isn't it? It's your immune system's in overdrive, basically, and it's attacking the organ. I think my body was doing that to all body parts. It was just like, if I, like an example would be, it's really odd. If I were to knock the back of my hand or even flick it, it would go red, a small dot would appear, and then my hand would swell up the whole thing. Um, the worst one was when I wore flip-flops once or went between my toes um, and my my toes in between swelled up. Actually, I'll tell you about the worst one was when my penis swelled up. But that's a whole oh, other really? story. Yeah, and I that was the worst day ever. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I can imagine, yeah. The whole thing swelled up and I had to show the... Bearing in mind, I'm only 22. And I, yeah. thought, I thought, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I knew that there's a certain feeling when you get these sort of um, shocks in the body it feels like a burny feeling in the bone. It felt really deep. And I remember once I got it, because I used to get it in my throat and that's when it would swell up. But I got it in, in, in my penis and I was thinking, surely not. I thought things are bad, but this is going to take it to, you know, the next level here. And it did, it swelled yeah. up. Um, yeah. Huge. Um, I took some pictures and set, took it to my doctor and we were laughing about it then a week after, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you can laugh about it now because that, yeah, I mean, that's going to be, crazy worrying at the time i mean you, you know it, it's interesting just as a, a, a small um as we digress a bit yeah inflammatory bowel disease can prevent it present in many different forms people report obviously things like fatigue because of blood loss but also skin disorders brain fog um a whole bunch of other inflammatory reactions um and and it's associated with a number of other conditions as well um but but at this point, like I'd love to unpack a little bit more about your story, um, Misha, and, and your decision to um, have the surgery um, and, and your feelings before you made that decision and after. And, and I mean, now, you know, I, I look at you, I've only known you since having the, the procedure and you present yourself as like someone 
very confident. I mean, for the listeners, you were in a pink jacket, which I absolutely rate uh, so, at the moment. So. So you got a lot of style, and clearly, you know, before you're you're into um, uh, nutrition and health and working out and looking good and all that kind of stuff. So I can imagine there are a lot of mixed feelings uh, going into this. But 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 why don't why don't I let you you tell the story? I think you know if you told me before I had my surgery, if I rewound back to when I was 21 and that that first consultant said the probability of you getting a bag is quite high I was in complete denial but when you'd been through like the sort of all the health implications I had for like four to five years of just battering over and over and over my decision to get a bag became very easy because I thought there was there was you know there was times where like I thought I'd love to just go on the holiday like you know I just want to go on holiday and have no no problems. Like, can I do that? And I thought, you know, there was numerous holidays I had to cancel because I just couldn't, I was too ill and then I had to just cancel it and it just didn't work. So when I actually came to the point of where I thought, well, I'm ready for the surgery now and the story, I've got to tell you the story because it's, it's epic. And it's basically, I remember I sat down with my partner at the time and I said, right, I'm going to get this surgery. And I remember sitting with my mum as well and saying, I've, I think I made my decision now. I want to do this. And my mum always came to every single one with me, um, every single meeting I had with my consultant. And we went in um, and I said, I think, I'm, I think I'm ready now. He was like, because basically I was on the last trial drugs and I didn't want to take any more. And I said, I think I'm ready. And he smiled, the consultant smiled and said, I kind of thought we were at that stage now. But he was like, I wanted you to make the decision yourself. I didn't want to push you into anything. He stood up, he walked across the corridor, he got the surgeons from across the corridor, they all came in that minute, and the surgeon looked at me and he said, if you're serious about doing this, I'll do it in my overtime on Saturday. And I was like, whoa, I was literally like, yeah, so that was literally five days time. Um, And I remember thinking, wow, and the the one thing that stuck in the back of my mind is my mum's going on holiday on Thursday. So my mum was going to Sri Lanka. So I had to, I went out in the corridor. I said, can you just give me a minute? And I called my mum and said, you know, I said, do you mind if I have this, like, I'm obviously going to have to take the surgery because if you're living with Crohn's disease or bowel disease, you're put behind people with cancer. So he was saying, if you don't get this done now, you're going to have to like potentially wait six to eight months. And I thought, oh, wow. I have to do this now. And I, I thought straight away, I thought I'm going to have to do it. So yeah, I opted to get it there and then. And uh, yeah, that was, that was as simple as. So I think if, you know, in the past I found, you know, getting a bag and I can see why people are extremely worried about getting a bag because it's a huge surgery. It's life-changing surgery. But um, for me, I'd been through enough like hardship to go, this is my only option now. I feel like I've been sort of pigeonholed down this to get my life back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what were your what were your thoughts immediately afterwards, and 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 obviously the the, the post care and stuff like that, and and you know, what what again? How did you you lean on your support network to support you through that time, and 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 going forward? You know, now like you know, you talk about it, and it's fantastic to have you as a spokesperson, the beacon. I want to get into all the other amazing stuff that you're doing as well a little bit later, but. But yeah, what was it like immediately after? So I woke up and I felt on top of the world. I literally was like, and it, what's really interesting, I immediately felt better. So, you know, I was, 
I, I think because I went in there, like they say you should try and be as well as possible, obviously before any surgery, shouldn't you? Um, and I was sort of, oh, I was on the on the ropes. I was sort of going to the toilet was starting to get more frequent again, but they just pumped me full of steroids. And I remember when I woke up, I was like, this is good. I feel really good. Obviously hadn't looked down or anything properly yet because I was like, it was all taped up because I had a massive, they had to go through my pre-existing scar. Um, I remember going into surgery so worried because the last surgery that was in my mind was when I was in a coma. So I was kind of having like PTSD, like panics. And I remember my, you know, I had to have an epidural. So, you know, they put it in the bottom of your back. And I remember holding my head over like this, getting an epidural and I couldn't stop shaking. I was like frantically shaking. So they gave me some, you all know what it is, you know, the sedative to try and um, calm down a little bit. And they were amazing in that anaesthetic room. They're so good in there. But I remember waking up and thinking, I feel really, really good. And then within about four hours, I felt horrendous. And basically what had happened, quite often they say when the bowel gets touched, it doesn't like being touched. It can go static. I don't know whether there's a medical term for that. Is there a medical term? Yeah, there is. Uh, it's um, it's bowel, I, th- I believe it's bowel stasis. It's been a while since I've done a GI surgery, but yeah, bowel stasis. Yeah. I had that really bad um, and it lasted around two weeks. And then what happened over that course of two weeks, the only way I can explain it, I felt about 3% in terms of my body charge. Like I just felt completely flat. And then it started becoming really active. So it went from being completely non-active to like horrendously overactive and fluid was just pouring out. It was leaking all over me and it was going all in my scar. So like, because the bag was filling up so fast, it was like blowing up. And they give you, when you first get a bag fitted in hospital, they give you a clear one so the surgeons can see it and make sure your stoma is healthy and then they basically give you a giant bag because they know it's going to be more active, but it wasn't actually working. So they had to filter it into like a, you know where they collect your urine on the edge of the bed? They had yeah. to filter it into like a stool version of that. Um, yeah. And it was bad. Like it, was, it wasn't working properly. They had to put a catheter down there. And I remember one of the days, the, the, my consultant who basically was the guy who I told you about who referred me to the surgeon... He wasn't even to do with the surgery, but I think he just wanted to come and see me just because we got along quite well. And I remember he walked in and I was lying on my back and I had a catheter in my throat and my into my stoma because it wasn't working. And he was like ghost white. And I remember when I saw him when I left hospital, he was like, I thought I made the wrong decision for you there. But luckily it ended up being all okay. But um, yeah, that was a bit of a rough time upon waking up for sure. It was a shock. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, and it's great, you know, you can be so honest about those experiences as well because people don't really see that side of things. You know, they they, they see that confident person that you are now. Um, but you, you've had to go through so much to, to, to get there as well. And, you know... But they do um, have people that are worried about that initial point after getting a bag the specialist that you get left with at the hospital, like Seb, you'll know yeah. when you go and get your medication, they're incredible. Like they are, yeah. they are, that is what they do. And I remember um, there was one particular one that I've named my stoma. So I've named my stoma Michael because they say like, um, one of my friends has got Crohn's disease and he's had chemotherapy, um, like stem cell transplant for it to try and, um, you know, basically reboot his body. And they said before he started his chemo, um, you know, you, you you shave your head 
we're not going to let the chemo take your hair. It's like a form of empowerment. And I think early on when my stoma nurse said to me, name your stoma, it was the best thing I ever done because it made me think like, you're mine. Like I'm owning you, not the other way around. And it completely, that, that moment there, my nurse done that, it completely changed my whole thought process around how difficult this was going to be. That's, I think that's super empowering. Um, and, and I love that. And I think, you know, there's a lot we can learn from 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 different sort of um sort of psychological techniques i think to to own your condition own you know something that would be seen as a vulnerability or as a weakness but actually something that is is part of you seb i want to bring you in here at at this point because you 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 went down a different route you didn't have as much of a reaction to the medications clearly they weren't working for you um you had some experiences within forums and 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 trying out some things what was um your journey like from from that point on and um and what was the response like from your gastro consultants as well so the first kind of big step i made was um i had a friend of my brother's as a acupuncturist and i i'm a big science geek I had no real time for alternative medicine um didn't believe in it um he claimed that he could help me um I was like well I'm running out of options here I might as well entertain the idea anyway and he talked about fire and heat and damp in my body which I was like okay this guy's a bit nuts but um I'm gonna bear with him um (laughs) And and part of the treatment, he said, well, I need to stop fire and damp things going in my body. And he referred to sort of certain foods. So in um, Chinese medicine, they, they talk of like gluten and sugar and alcohol and caffeine, these kind of things being these fire and damp forming foods. So he kind of gave me this big list of foods that I, I should be avoiding, which was really daunting because my diet was terrible. Um, well good for what I thought was for my OBD. So I, I was told I should go on a, a low residue diet. I became completely, I almost had a phobia of fruits and vegetables and fiber. Like if I would look at a tomato, I would run to the toilet. Um, and yeah, he told me to cut out you know, gluten, dairy, sugar, potatoes. I was like, that's my entire diet. I mean, my diet was like pizzas. Beige, pasta. just beige. <laughs> Yeah, beige food, yeah. <laughs> Cereal, I was like, well, there's nothing left. And I ended up going around the, the supermarket and I think ended up with just like rice and chicken, I think was the only thing I found left that was that would fit both of my like belief systems of like this new stuff that I've been told I shouldn't have and the stuff that I knew I couldn't have or believed I could have. And the strange thing was, was coming off gluten, dairy and all these things, I, I don't know how much of this was a placebo effect as well, like within... I think about three weeks I managed to completely come off of steroids I was like actually you know what maybe I can like there's there's more to health than medicine it, it was that first time that I was actually like okay wow this is interesting like this something's happened here I, mm. I, I can't explain it yet but something's happened here um and that was the real that was the real beginning and then I started to do more research online started to understand maybe some of the theories behind why some of this worked at the same time I was like I don't really care like it's working for me and that just got me really, really interested. And like to cut right, a long story short, um, like now I've been off my medication now for probably about four years. 
Um, I live very well with disease. I, I still have flare-ups. Like I'm, as I, I would never say that I'm cured. Um, it, it's like it's in remission most of the time. Um, but to answer your question around like sort of receptiveness from my healthcare team, like very little. Like that they, I was going against them by coming off these medications, and 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 like you're aware the education around sort of diet and lifestyle and all these kind of things is is just not there from the sort of conventional healthcare system. So it was outside of their comfort zone as well. Yeah. From what I, what I know now is there's so many different aspects to health. Like health is so complex. Um, we still don't know so much about it and all the different things I do. And I'm happy to sort of go into a bit deeper into sort of some of the stuff that that's worked for me. Um, all of those things have had just as strong effect as some of the medications I was taking. And, and that's not to say that medications shouldn't be taken. Like if I hadn't have taken those things, I would probably be dead. They're just part of it. And I think, I think for me, the exciting thing is we've now got more options, hopefully for, for patients where like Misha said, and what I experienced is you kind of diagnose and it's like, you've got medications or surgery or like, you don't have many options and it's really like disempowering and, and they're all mm. options that you don't have any control over really mm. so to then start to throw some other things in the sort of lifestyle space i think then it gives some people some hope that actually maybe they can play a role in here and they can help contribute towards this thing and and, and you're not just left to the doctor to i, fi- to I find you. that i find that really interesting the way you spoke about that in terms of the way you cut things out because naturally i've done the same thing so you know, if I rewind back to when I first got my diagnosis, I was looking at, you know, I've always been one to track what I eat anyway. So I know exactly, you know, I use like something like my fitness pal and register and track all the food I was eating. I just naturally done that from university. And I was looking at like more in depth into my nutrients. So I was thinking, you know, everything you put in your mouth has got to go through your digestive system. And the more you look at Western diet, the more you realize it's horrendous. Like, do you know what I mean? Like we're eating more and more fast foods. People just want now, don't they? They want to get it now and eat it. And I ate chicken and rice for a year to try and get myself into a level of remission. But I think I was already too far gone because when I had that first colonoscopy, it basically showed acute appendicitis. So um, it was a whole, it was like basically my whole um, colon was just gone. Like that's what they said. It was already there. I think maybe if I caught it at an earlier stage where the inflammation wasn't so high, I think it could have been, um, you know, controlled through diet. I think there is there is something in that. The research isn't there yet, but I do believe that there's a correlation between the increase of, you know, people getting gastro problems and, you know, gut health issues and Western diet. There's got to be. You can't fast track and process foods and not expect any health implications off the back of it. I don't know what you think about it, Rupi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, we've we've discussed this topic a number of times on the pod. Um, we, we had a fantastic uh, conversation with gastroenterologist Dr. Desmond, who is um, he's of a plant based persuasion. He definitely sees the benefits of a whole food plant based diet uh, on IBD. There, there are some interesting research studies that he was discussing actually on on the pod that wasn't um, completely plant based. It was actually still with animal proteins as well, but a uh, a, a restricted diet in terms of removing um, certain potential irritants like uh, sugar, uh, some types of gluten and dairy as well. Um, and there is limited evidence, uh, like you said, Misha, on um, autoimmune protocols. There were some uh, studies uh, out of Scripps University um, and on the West Coast 
uh, they demonstrated reduced reductions in CRP levels as measures of uh, IBD activity, um, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. Um, so, so there's definitely stuff out there, but that, like you said, that there isn't a huge amount of robust evidence. But what I find interesting is um, the difference in response and what what might be responsible for the differences in responses from patient to patient. Like you, like you said, you know, your disease sounds like it was very advanced. Other people may have differences in terms of the, the pre-existing diet and, and other things going on. There's obviously the lifestyle component that definitely has an impact. I mean, you know, stress and poor sleep and, and all these other things, uh, and history of antibiotic use, all these things can play into the propensity towards autoimmune conditions in general, let alone IBD. So it's it's my interest lies in how do we figure out the the complex interplay of diet lifestyle medication surgery to suit different people's needs at different uh stages from a patient's perspective and from a lot of people like you know i speak to a lot of people in this community there's a gap in that nutritional guidance there's a huge gap and i found that i was given like a pamphlet that looked like it was from the 60s you know like the, that that was the kind of thing i was given and i feel like there's a huge area there that is just it's confusing for people. Do I eat red meat? Don't I eat red meat? Do I eat this? Yeah. Don't I eat this? And I'm like, you need to understand your own body. Like one of the things I always say to people is like, you need to create your own nutritional plan. You know, if, you know, if a doctor said to me post-surgery now, you can't eat nuts because it blocks up your stoma. Okay. Well, I can, I can eat free and then I can go up from there. You know, I've always, I've always sort of gone with that mentality and it's worked for me really well now. I know I can't eat loads of sweet corn because it would play hell. I know I can't eat loads of, loads of peanuts because it will block me up. But I know that if I do eat peanuts and I chew them 20 times, so it's like a paste or have a nut butter, I'm absolutely fine. But I'd only know that from practice, 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 yeah. practice and sort yeah, of understanding yeah. my own body. And I think it's the same, you know, with a lot of people when unfortunately after they have a surgery like this quite often people's confidence are completely knocked so then they go right if i'm giving this leaflet i've done talks before um i do stuff with colorplast now and i've gone to these talks and some people haven't eaten something for 20 years because their doctor said they weren't allowed at the beginning i'm thinking that's crazy what you've not done that but it's, it's the information they're given and then they take it and then they have you know they don't know people like us exist online where you can you can get more information yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, encouraging that intuitive behavior within reason, uh, I th- I th- it's a very important part of um, uh, further interventions going forward. And, you know, Seb, you mentioned something about having that locus of control, that sort of empowering uh, um, process of, of actually owning it a bit more in, in the same way, Misha, you were talking about owning your, your stoma owning your diet and actually having some positive impact as well m- may may in itself, even if it wasn't do anything, be really reassuring for people i i wonder like so what have your experience has been um with diet thus far i mean it sounds like your your condition is under um good management with with what you found works for you um what has been your experiences within the ibd community do you get positive responses negative is it mixed is it i feel diet's a very controversial subject in the ibd community i'd like to say that I, although diet was probably the early parts that I explored and I became maybe even quite obsessed with it, um, I'm now very much of the opinion that diet isn't the only thing at all. 
like diet plays an important role in health, but it's not the only thing. And actually there are other aspects of, of lifestyle like um, stress and your mind and happiness and things like that are really important. Sleep's really important and movement. Like there, there are all these different things that interplay. So it's just, I see lots of people that have what is the, the perfect diet if there was one, like there isn't, um, and they're still sick. And that's not there's, because there's maybe some other things that, that need to be looked at that they might not be aware of or we can't find out, but everyone is unique. From a diet perspective, I think there's this real polarizing bit with sort of within the medical community and then the patients picked up on this and this is what I did. It's kind of, your, there's anecdotally this stuff around that fiber causes problems. My belief on that now and my experience on that now is I feel fiber caused me problems because I would see fiber in the toilet. So I would eat a grape and there would be, a, I'd see part of a grape in the toilet or I would eat some mushrooms and I'd see some mushrooms in the toilet and I'd start to associate seeing that fiber material in the toilet with my needing to go to the toilet. And, and I would say I would, I would eat a tomato and I'd run to the toilet like 10 minutes later, not really thinking actually, you know what, there's no way that tomato has got from my mouth to my bum in 10 minutes. Like it's just physically not possible, but that's how it felt. And I think because people report that people then say it, you then start to think, oh yeah, well, everyone else says that that's a problem. So you then start it become, I think it almost becomes more of a psychological problem as well. And, and I think there is some evidence that too much fiber can be bad in certain people. And like I, I, it's complex, but I think fiber is given a real bad rep in the IBD community. And actually like Rupi, I'm sure you're aware and I've heard in some of your podcasts, like the importance of plant-based material, the evidence coming out about how that helps induce remission and maintain remission, how it helps generate these short chain fatty acids that help regenerate your gut lining. Like, so I think when you see most patients are reporting, you see a lot of patients, I'm sure Misha, you've seen the same, like, like the diet you can eat or the only diet I can eat on with IPD is a McDonald's diet or a junk food diet. That's all I can get away with. And, and I was the same. I, I would eat that and I would be scared of fiber. And I would, if, if, if you told me now or told me back then the stuff I eat now, like I, I, I have probably 12 portions of fruit and vegetables a day, at least every day. If you told me that four or five years ago, I told you to do one. Like, I, I feel like there's no, there's no way. I would, I would probably get one a week. <laughs> and I'd be like, there's no way you can do that. It's not possible. And I, I hated it. I was like, I don't like, and you see a lot of people saying, I don't, I hate eating junk food or you don't like it. You know it, but it's the only thing that feels like it works. And um, it's taken me a long time to build up that confidence to eat plant-based food again. Um, I started by, like Misha said, like I, I started like blending stuff. I was like, well, I think I can get away with a peeled apple and I'm going to blend the hell out of it and then drink that. And then I'm like, well, if I blend it, then surely I can just chew the hell out of it and then it'll be okay. And then you start to build that confidence back. You know what? I can start to eat some of these foods. And now I can eat anything. I, I, I can eat anything. I, I do still avoid gluten and dairy. I do think they cause me some problems. I don't know 100% certain, but I can get away without them. But it's been so exciting now to be able to eat all these amazing foods again. Like my my diet was so bland and so boring. Um, like all these flavors and stuff. 
yeah, quite often if you do cut certain products like that completely out of your diet, when you introduce them again, they will cause havoc in someone's yeah, normal yeah. gut. So it's kind of like, it's difficult, isn't it? And, and, and there's a psychological reaction as well. Like I would, I was, I had a phobia of seeds and tomatoes and things for like years. And I, I would I would have a pasta dish and like pick out herbs because I'd be like, there's some green in there. Like that's that's evil, that stuff. I need to get rid of that. And if I didn't, I'd be like, oh no, now I'm going to run to the toilet. So to overcome that's been a huge challenge. And even even sometimes now I'd be like, oh, my, my stomach's not great. And I'll, I'll see like some mushrooms on the on my plate and I'll be like, should I eat these? Should I not eat these? But like, I, I, I know they're fine for me now. Um, and you've got to play that there's, there's two peppers I'm still not sure about and oats I'm still not sure about. They're the only ones that I'm still on the fence on. But again, you've got to try these things. And it, I think you can challenge these things again. I think a lot of people, they don't work or they're told they don't work. They never challenge it. But don't you feel, Seb, that we're kind of like modernizing the way you should approach your condition because that's how I feel sometimes when I when I'm talking to people I'm like why aren't you getting this sort of information from your medical team like some of the questions yeah. I get asked online so I, Rupi, I do a lot of Q&A so a lot of my story every day is constantly Q&A because I just get loads and loads of messages um, and some of the questions that people ask me I'm thinking you, you should be you should know that I don't understand why you don't know that and that's quite worrying and it's sometimes it's like the most basic of things but I'm thinking that's where, like, depending on where you are, depending on your nurse, your doctor, like how much information you're actually, like, getting and retaining. But it's quite worrying. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, like, you know, we already have a very stretched healthcare system. And if you're not privileged enough to go to have a private consultations, we have a bit more time. Um, and, and you're given a lot more information in, in that time as well. Or you have more regular follow-ups, then you're, you're going to be, a lot more um you're going to be misinformed and 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 you're not going to have as much information and you know covid in particular for me is having a real detrimental effect not because of covid itself but actually because of the ramifications of lockdown on conditions like ibd uh, of which you know this is just one of many chronic issues and the fact that people can't see their gastroenterologist the fact that, that people can't ask these questions and they turn to luckily reliable sources like you guys um in terms of of getting the information so yeah i mean i remember when i was uh well i still do q a's and that kind of stuff and i get very basic questions about nutrition because there is a lot of misinformation out there and it's interesting you know we're having this conversation about food and stuff and and ways in which we can we can manage conditions um there's there's really good elements of that and i think we need to embrace more nutritional interventions and part of my nutritional medicine masters actually was looking at ibd and uh, was working with a gastroenterologist um in terms of you know, what evidence there is for reducing gluten dairy and uh, a few other products whilst in- increasing fiber obviously there isn't too much evidence for that at the moment but on the flip side there's also that health anxiety right which plays out into the stresses that actually might exacerbate the conditions one of my best friends is a gastroenterologist um at St. Mark's, uh, which it, for the listeners is one of the, the best gastro places in, in the country, if not Europe. And um, he sees a lot of patients that, like you said, Seb, have got like the perfect diet and they are analyzing absolutely everything they put in their diet. And he's like, I fear that these people are actually exacerbating their conditions as playing out in, in their numbers and, and their scopes um, because of anxiety around the food and stuff like that. So, you know... It really does be yeah, obsessive. I remember it, literally... 
looking mm. in, the, putting tissue down in the toilet and analysing my stool as if like it was like a sample. And I thought that is not, that's not a way to live. Is like when you're yeah. physically every time. And then I remember I'd see like, like Seb said, you see like a little bit of mucus or something. I'm like, I'm going backwards again. I'm going back, I'm going yeah. back. And then I panic yeah. and then I worry because I'm panicking. So I know that you're releasing certain endorphins what are not good for me. And then it's stress. And yeah, it is all connected, definitely. I think stress, like for me, stress is probably up there with one of the biggest drivers of this. And stress can manifest in so many different ways, whether it's work stress or financial stress or health stress or anxiety. Like there's so many different elements to this. And I think... Um, I love the saying, I can't remember who, who who I'm quoting this from, but they said it's it's better to eat the wrong foods with the right frame of mind than the right foods with the wrong frame of mind. I love I, that. I think like it's so true. And I think there's stuff, and I don't know, Rupi, you said this before, like because of your uh your reputation and your profile and stuff like you're, you're scared to eat something wrong because someone might be like hey oh my god Ruthie's eating McDonald's or something like you can't do that and I think we've got to relax on these things I think if, if generally and there's like the 80-20 rule like I think majority of my diet is good but I still will go and binge and eat a bar of chocolate and stuff and like it doesn't kill me and actually I will enjoy that <laughs> yeah and I think that's part of the luxuries that you have to enjoy I mean like I I do share like some of the you know Haribo and stuff that I have on the wards and all that kind of stuff and you know the burgers and chips and that kind of stuff and you know I I, I, I people always ask me what my favorite food is expecting I'm going to say broccoli I'm like fried chicken it's what it is it's fried, it's, I'm just and, being like, honest you know and the, the really fascinating stuff like the research coming out now about like when you're if you're in a stressed state then your digestive system isn't in a space to receive that food so actually you can respond differently to different foods at different like if you're eating let's say gluten we've talked about you're eating gluten while you're running between meetings and stuff like you're going to be stressed you're eating that food it's going to cause a reaction whilst if you're eating it when you're on holiday and you're chilled out and things like that, then then it's so and suddenly oh, okay, I can eat the bread when I'm in France and that's fine. Yeah, and it, it's, it's just it's just it's, it's your environment you're in. It's not it's nothing to do with the food. And like I think we're only starting to scratch the surface on how much all these different things interplay so much. Yeah, because I, I remember there was a time where where I changed medications and it was working. I was like, this is brilliant. So I thought, you know what, I'm having one meal now. I'm not eating any sugar or anything in ages, and I cut dairy out. So I was just having like uh, coconut milk and stuff instead. And I thought, you know what, this is the one now. So I went and got like a litre of milkshake and I bought like a pick and mix bigger than my head. And I ate it all in like, I felt like complete crap afterwards. But yeah. it didn't actually have any implications to my gut. Like it didn't make, I was already ill. So I was already ill. I might as well just go the whole hog and enjoy it. The thing I want to mention as well about diet, I think we, we're told to sort of like keep a food diary or try and analyse stuff. But like these things can take time. I, I, I see mm. like if, let's say a particular food is causing like an inflammatory reaction like that could take days or weeks to actually have an impact and mm. it's it's not that i think we're looking for that i've eaten something i'm going to the toilet within 24 hours but it actually might yeah. have an effect it might have a cumulative effect over weeks or months and i think mm. when i cut out gluten it wasn't like i then suddenly went better straight away like it's, it's been a slow my health has steadily improved over a number of years and I always feel like I'm, I'm reaching new levels that I never thought was possible and, and that's not just diet as well and I, I 
diet's an important part, like I said, but I think there's there's so much more to health than diet. Yeah. I want to, um, we could talk for a lot longer than we are, I know, but I, I feel like we should we should bring this to a close one. But I want to talk a bit about, um, Misha, your experience online now. You know, you're a spokesperson for Stoma uh, companies. You know, you're doing amazingly well on social media and the Q&A and all that kind of stuff. So what what is what is the the current state of like your kind of work now and your uh your your work in in your profession as well as where you want to take this going forward i think i think like you know the whole the whole like sort of thesis of why i started my platforms was to help people i'm like a i love people it's what i've always loved to do so no matter what i've done in terms of a job as long as i'm connecting with people like this is why this doing this like we are right now is not the same as if we were there in your kitchen having some food um, you know, I like I like I like being with people and interacting with people. So I, I knew that, you know, I could do that where I am now doing personal training and rehabilitation work at the club and that. And I'm at an amazing club. It's called First Class Fitness in Weymouth. And it's, you know, it's it's like a community, which is amazing. But I wanted to translate that, that, that sort of specialness we have there into the online world. I wanted to connect to people the same way. And, you know, I think between my platforms now, I've got something like, 500,000 followers that's five like 500,000 people that's a lot of people you know and it's it's amazing to be able to actually like, I felt like I physically know these people like I've got you know you have on Facebook you have your top fans don't you and I've got hundreds of top fans that will tune in every week and when I do a Facebook live bag change and it is incredible like I get people now send me pictures like once a week now I feature young children on my page so you know I put a video up of there's a collection of all the ones I've done it's had a million views in like 20 hours. It's like crazy. Um, but it's it's trying to bring like all parts of the community together. And that's how I really have always treated my online stuff. And I think that's how it's naturally grown. If you can give people value, they will come back. You know, and I've done that from day one, just literally because I knew what it was like to be in a situation where I was completely helpless. And that's a horrible way to feel, you know, to have no one to relate to. So that was like the online stuff. And then... I wanted to basically, these bags, like this was the, the bag that I picked, the first ever bag I picked when I had my stoma fitted was one of them with one of these. And I thought, I didn't know anything about this company. Like I literally knew nothing about it. Um, and it turns out they're the biggest organization for making stoma wear products in the world. Like just coincidentally, I didn't even know. I reached out to them and said, is there a chance that I could do something to like give back to the community? Like, you know, whether I could test products or, you know, give sample reviews or anything to make people help people pick a better product to match their body type. Um, I got an email back saying, would you come to the Peterborough headquarters? So I went to the Peterborough headquarters and then the week after that, they flew me out to Copenhagen and now I'm on the front of their building in Copenhagen. I'm basically their global ambassador. So I'll go to like, I'd done a conference last year which was in front of about 7,000 people, um, which was it. And I got to be interviewed and interview the CEO, which is incredible. So those kind of things like, you know, do I, do I feel like any sort of like badness about getting my condition? In a way, yeah, like if I could take it back and not have a medical condition, like, yeah, probably would do that. But what this condition's enabled me to do in terms of how much I love helping people has opened, like I wouldn't be here right now talking to you you know, it opened, it's opened a lot of doors. And then apart from those online things, I had the idea when I first got diagnosed, obviously my job's rehab is what I like love. I love anatomy and physiology. I love like the body and how the body works. 
And when I had that surgery done, I thought, this is dangerous. And not only dangerous in terms of, you know, um, injury, but for herniation and prolapse, I was like, there's got to be some sort of statistics on these. I thought it must be crazy. And the more talks I'd done with Colourplast around the country and the more people I connected with, like we ran a charity event where we had loads of spokespeople there. Seb was there as well. Um, and basically, I come to realise that so many people were having prolapses and herniations after surgery. So they'd, get, they'd have an open wound, whether it be a keyhole or whatnot. But the minute you open the abdomen wall, you've created a, a weakness in the abdomen. Like, it's just simple, isn't it? Like, that's like basic logic. So I thought for all these people that are getting prolapses and hernias, the stuff that was on the market, I thought, is like from the 60s again. I thought this needs to be brought to a time because I like clothing. I like, I've always liked fashion. I like feeling good in clothes. And one thing, it wasn't that I was ever ashamed of my bag, but I didn't want my full bag swinging around underneath a tight top if I went for a few drinks with my mate. Um, you know, it's not, it's not the look I really wanted. So I set to design a type one medical product. Um, it took me two years to design it. Um, and it was a lot of like connections, a lot of favors, a lot of like getting stuff done. And in like early investment, you'll know if you're starting anything, how hard it is to like develop a book. Like that's yeah. it's really hard, isn't it? And these things have to be tested as well. So C marked and everything. And then now, just before lockdown, I managed to get it together. I ordered um, at the beginning of the lockdown my first like 300 because they're bloody expensive um, to produce. And in that time, I've sold three batches. So basically, there's over 1,200 people living with a bag with my belts on. And it's enabled me to produce a further 2,000. So now it's starting to scale up and become like a proper yeah. business now, which is amazing because yeah. I've basically tackled something that was really bothering me, you know, yeah. and then now get to give it to people and go and, you know, and you get anything like you'll know with any of like your stuff said what you do. And someone comes back to you and goes, what, you're, what you've done has literally completely changed the way I thought about that or the way I'm reacting about my condition. It's like you, you don't get a better buzz than that. You do not get yeah. a better buzz than that. So, yeah, that's. What I'm doing online is like incredible. What I'm doing with Colourplast is like great. But like to get to the point now where I can, I've almost helped me develop a business that helps people. It's like, mm. yeah, it couldn't have asked for better really. It's amazing. That's amazing. And I, I, I love this because, in, and this is why I wanted you both on at the same time because, you know, both of you have owned your condition and you're making your vulnerability your strength and and said what you're doing with your business and, and your RVD community as well is is as inspiring uh, i wonder if you could dive into a, a bit more about how you you started that and your online presence and how you utilize your existing skills to to what you want to do for the for the foreseeable future yeah certainly so i mean my my professional background was i ran a still kind of just about to run a web design and, and marketing company like misha said earlier the, the amount of information given to patients it was pretty poor uh, and and really like sporadic and and there wasn't that much online as well and I, I so we set out and set up ivdereef.com so that was a web an information website and we we decided to put lots of articles on there and sort of create content that just wasn't really out there and and I mean that's grown massively we're now getting getting over a hundred thousand people a month visiting the website from all around the world so it's amazing to have that resource out there the thing that I'm super passionate about is 
there, there's a lot of people now in the kind of patient advocacy space um like misha and like doing an amazing job of like raising awareness and like empowering people to sort of talk about their conditions sort of public facing and i've never kind of quite been that person <laughs> um so for me i've ended up working more with kind of healthcare i work with pharmaceutical companies and, and i'm trying to come at it from from the other angle as well so i think like misha and all the people in the in the in the ibd community are like doing amazing stuff on the public side um the big project we're working on at the moment is a is an education platform so the concept here is to empower the healthcare professionals to actually be able to prescribe bespoke content to patients whether they're going to have a new medication or go for a procedure or um we're building this incredible library of 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 content um and that's going to be delivered through a mobile app and, and, and a website platform and, and we're just we're, we're trialing that in pediatrics so we're testing that with adam brooks hospital um in cambridge the royal alex down in brighton also southampton as well at the moment and that's it's super exciting to see what impact that will have so how can we educate patients better start to really empower them and, and allow them to start to take more control and feel less scared of of, of their disease and and like misha said i think uh, early on it was frustrating living the disease but now i'm i, I i'm glad i have ibd like it, it is me it's part of me it's given me some incredible opportunities i've learned so much about myself if i hadn't have gone through that journey I, i'd i'd probably still be building websites for some random companies and <laughs> and, and and i think you, you again like misha saying like connections with other people and i'm sure you get this for doing the pod and things like that like, I, I truly believe now that's kind of where happiness really comes from, like connecting with other people. Like we think happiness is buying a nice car or going on holiday, or, but I think actually happiness is more about connecting with people. And, and for me, the joy when I get an email from someone saying, hey, I've bought your book and it's like completely changed my life. Like that, that is like, wow, okay. Like just, just everything I do just for that one person to feel better about themselves it is is so rewarding and i think that makes everything worthwhile and it's a tough process it's been a long hard journey as i'm sure you both can relate to as well but there's a lot of resilience there as well and i'll never give up and <laughs> it's kind of i think Definitely. you see some of these startups and you're like yeah but when when stuff gets tough then they're probably going to give up because it's not their rule like this is my passion this is my life and i, I think yeah. um this is my purpose and i yeah it, i will never give up doing it Amazing. Honestly, uh, guys, Misha, Seb, it's been an absolute joy and a privilege to to speak to you both. And uh, I, I just love the fact that you are turning what people would see initially as adversity into something that can flourish and grow. And, you know, you found your community and you found your passion. And, um, you know, the stuff that you're doing for the for the wider community beyond IBD, I think is it's going to be super, super impactful. So I just wanted to formally say like... Uh, really really appreciate you giving your time to speak to me in the pod and um i can't wait to support you both further it's brilliant yeah thank you so much for inviting us and uh, hopefully next time we can you can cook us some food have some of the food yeah. Food. <laughs> yeah i was hoping you were going to send me something and i could eat it now um. <laughs> yeah. 
I really hope you enjoyed that podcast with both Misha and Seb. You can find all the links to the uh, stuff that we discussed today on thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. And I will see you here next time.